If I haven't met you guys before, huge, huge welcome to you. My name's Emma, I'm part of the team here at KXC, and it is a total joy to come and speak to you this morning. We're just going to spend a bit of moment in prayer just before we kick off. And everyone just stays silent, it's amazing. Okay, so Lord, we just choose to lift our eyes to you in this moment. And just say, come Holy Spirit, would you fill this place with your presence? Open our hearts to hear your word. And would you come and take these words, Lord, and use them for your glory? Amen. Amen. Amazing. Well, for the last few weeks, we have been journeying through the Easter story, journeying with Jesus through the highs of Palm Sunday um, and of Lois's dancing, which was utterly remarkable if you caught that. Um, We then went into Good Friday, just kind of walking through the desolation, the pain, the confusion as we kind of remembered Jesus dying on the cross. And then last Sunday, kind of the high of Easter Sunday, celebrating the thing that is at the very heart of our faith, the resurrection, the moment where we celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and over death. And the resurrection really is the event that changed everything, right? Like it's the place where death loses its power. We suddenly glimpse like a foretaste of what's to come for us, that like one day we are going to rise with him as well. And yet often there's this kind of lingering question that's just kind of left hanging in the air. Because if we're honest, the world still feels a lot more like Good Friday than it does Easter Sunday. Like, how are we meant to live out those incredible resurrection truths in a Good Friday world? How does the message of the cross not just become a story that we tell once a year, but actually lives within us in such a way that not only do we experience the life that it talks about, but we overflow with that life to the rest of the world? And no doubt this same question was probably the one lingering in the minds of the disciples. Like a few days after the resurrection, all of the disciples had heard that Jesus rose from the grave. Like some of them had even seen him with their own eyes. And yet we find them huddled in a room together with the doors locked because they're scared of the authorities. But just in a few days' time, this bunch of fearful disciples go from being huddled in a locked room to preaching in front of thousands, casting out demons, healing the sick, um, raising the dead, confronting the powers of their day. They literally turn the world upside down. So what happened that took them from knowing about the resurrection to being people who brought resurrection life to others? And at the start of the book of Acts, we see the answer. The Spirit is poured out. And this was foretold by Jesus in John 7. He said that anyone who uh, believes in him will have streams of living water that will flow from within them. And by that, he meant the Spirit. And this was also promised in the Old Testament. God said that he would pour his Spirit out in such a way that the consequences of that would be like a river erupting in the middle of a desert. And so in Acts chapter 2, we see that promise finally fulfilled. Like the spirit, it's poured out on all the disciples and the world has never been the same since. And so today we are starting a new teaching series called Streams in the Wasteland. And over the next six weeks, we're going to be going on this journey of really asking the question, like how do we become people who are overflowing with this living water? How do we become people who aren't denying the reality of the wasteland, who aren't denying kind of the pain of that desert place, but equally people who aren't so accustomed to it that we deny the power and the promise of resurrection life that Jesus came to bring? Like, how do we become people who don't just live knowing about resurrection, 
but people who actually have the audacity to believe that somehow through his power at work within us, we actually get to see dead things come to life in this city. So there are two passages that we are kind of going to be uh, anchoring ourselves in over this whole series, and they are Ezekiel 47 and John 7. And we're going to kind of keep circling back to these as we go. But today we're just going to spend some time kind of unpacking them and really laying the foundations for the rest of the series. So if you have a Bible with you, open it up to Ezekiel 47. And I'm not going to lie, guys, Ezekiel is a bit of a weird book. Um, If you've read it before, you'll know what I mean. If you haven't, you're in for a treat. Um, We've got a lot of bizarre visions going on. We've got kind of lots of symbolic language. It's it's not completely easy to read. Um, But just to give a bit of context, Ezekiel is writing as an exile in Babylon. So the Babylonian army, they have come, they've attacked Jerusalem, they have taken lots of the Jewish people back to Babylon, and Ezekiel is one of them. So he finds himself in exile, and in that place, God speaks to him, and he gives him these visions, some of them very strange, uh, for the people of Israel. And really, kind of as Ezekiel is in exile, as he's hearing reports of his homeland being destroyed, the key question that he is wrestling with Like the central theme to the whole of this book is how can hope be restored? So we're told in Ezekiel 37 that the people of Israel, they have no hope left. Um, It's a really tragic verse. It says, our hope is gone. And it's into that place of total hopelessness that God lifts Ezekiel's head and he gives him a vision of the future. And he shows him how to hope again. How to not let the conditions of exile be the thing that shapes his life, but how to let the hope of God be the defining truth upon which he builds. And I don't know about you, but I want to live like that. Like, we live in a moment where a lot of people are saying our hope is gone. There's this layer of despair that seems pretty thick right now, and all for pretty good reasons. But I want to be like Ezekiel. I want to wrestle for hope in this moment. Not let the defining thing about me be the conditions in which I live, but be defined by the hope of God. Like to live my life shaped from that truth. So Ezekiel 47, this is the passage that we are looking at. Um, And I'm going to give you a synopsis of it, basically, and then I'll pull out a few verses. But basically, Ezekiel sees a picture of the temple. And in this temple, there's a river that started to flow from it. But the river doesn't stay in the temple. It flows down the steps of the temple into the surrounding area. Um, everywhere this, go- this river goes, life breaks out. And the river goes down into the sea and just swarms of living creatures are there. We're told in verse 9, um, swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. In verse 12, it says, fruit trees of all kinds grow up on the banks of the river. Their leaves do not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. It's basically this picture of wherever the river is, there is extraordinary life. But to kind of fully understand the magnitude of this vision for the Jewish people, we kind of have to to understand two things. And the first is to do with geography. Um, I know everyone wants to talk about geography on a Sunday morning, but stay with me. Uh, This river, it is flowing out of the temple and it's flowing east, which means it flows down the Jordan Valley and into the Dead Sea. 
And some of you have may have been to the Dead Sea. Quick show of hands, anyone been to the Dead Sea? Oh, lovely. Wow, great, guys, lovely. Um, well, you guys will know that the remarkable thing about the Dead Sea is its salt content, which I know doesn't sound hugely <laughs> remarkable, questionable definition of remarkable there, but it's 35% salt, which basically means that nothing can survive in this sea. There's no fish, there's no plants, no life at all. But what Ezekiel sees in this vision is that when the river runs into the Dead Sea, swarms of living creatures start to live there. The salt water is made fresh. The second thing you need to know is that water is often used as a metaphor for God's spirit in the scriptures. So when the Jewish people would have heard this, they would have instantly understood that the river was the spirit of God. So when Ezekiel said that the river was in the temple, they're like, yeah, fine, that makes perfect sense. The temple was the place where God's manifest presence was on earth. That was to be expected. But the problem with the vision is that the thing, and the thing that would have been mind-blowing for them is that the God's presence didn't just stay in the temple. It wasn't contained there. The river ran out of the temple and started to transform the whole world. So in other words, this vision, God is giving an extraordinary promise to his people. Like he's saying, I know the pain of exile right now, but there is a time coming when the river of God, where my spirit will be poured out and death will be swallowed up in life. Like I will pour my spirit out in such a way that it's not just going to be confined to the temple, but it will reach the whole world and transform everything. And this was the promise that the people of God held onto. So if you fast forward a couple hundred of years, the Jewish people, they're now back in Jerusalem. They're out of exile, but they're under a different oppressor, the Roman Empire. And this vision that Ezekiel had, this was the one that they were still clinging, clinging onto. There will be a day when God's presence will come again and everything will change. So it's with this context in mind that we kind of come to our second passage, which is John 7. So in the Bibles, flip over to the New Testament. And we're going to read from verse 37. So it says this, on the last and greatest day of the festival. And we're just going to pause there because this piece of context is absolutely crucial to understand everything else that follows. This feast um, that the passage is talking about, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. And what would happen is for a week, like the entire nation of Israel would all crowd into the city of Jerusalem and they'd live in tents. Now, as someone who absolutely hates camping with every single fiber of my being, this sounds like hell on earth for a week, but it was a celebration, apparently. It was a celebration of God's faithfulness to his people in the Exodus, but it was also a prayer as well, and it was like, God, would you come and liberate us again? So every day of the week, they would be living in these tents just scattered around the streets of Jerusalem. But there was a certain time of the day. And at that time, the priest, he would come down from the top of the temple. He'd walk the whole way down the temple steps, down to the bottom of Jerusalem. He'd go to the pool of Siloam with a massive water jar. He'd dip the water jar into the pool. And then this, he'd lead this procession back up to the top of the temple. And every single person in the city would line the streets and they'd be singing the psalms. And these psalms were like, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. But Lord, would you come and liberate us again? Like you can imagine the electric atmosphere. It must have been thousands and thousands of people singing as this priest takes this water jar up to the top of the temple. And then he pours that water straight out again. And it flows down the temple steps towards the east. 
It's this living picture. It was a reenactment of Ezekiel's vision. This was a way for the whole country to pray together, to say, Lord, give us this living water. But when Jesus, what we read here, it was the last, it was the greatest day of the feast. And so on that day, the priest would do this seven times. So for hours, people would have been lining the streets, singing together, throats probably hoarse by the end. And these seven jars of water would have been brought up to the top of the temple and then poured out. And you can kind of just imagine like a hush just descending upon the crowd. Like tears kind of starting to well up in people's eyes. Like this is a holy moment. There is this longing deep within for God to come and actually do this. Like on this last and greatest day of the feast, it's like, Lord, let us not have to go through another year. Let us not have to do this next year. Would it be this year that we see your living water poured out? And at that moment... In that time, Jesus gets up and he says in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. In other words, like the thing that you guys have been longing for since you were born, the thing that you are praying for, the reason you've all gathered here today, I am it. I am that source of living water. And so come to me and drink. And not only will you discover living water that will satisfy your thirst, but you too will become a well of living water that's going to spill out and bring healing to the nations. It's this radical, radical claim. Like you can see why he got himself killed. But as you carry on reading the Gospels, you see that every single thing that that the river was in Ezekiel 47, Jesus was to the world. Like he brought life wherever he went. He wasn't contained to the temple. He, He brought that life to everyone. Just like the trees on the bank of the river, he fed the hungry. He healed the sick. And it's this living water that the disciples are filled with as they are huddled together in that upper room. And what happens when they're filled with that kind of living water? Well, those followers of Jesus, they go on to sacrifice everything in order to go to the darkest places, the places where it looks like death has won. They go to the forgotten people. They feed the hungry. They heal the sick. They cast out demons. They share the message of Jesus' resurrection life and death gets swallowed up in life. And this isn't just their story. This is our story. This is the story of the church. This is what we as KXE are called to do in this city. And yet my hunch is that for many of us, and myself included, I feel this big gap between what I read in the scriptures and my experience in my own life. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to be unpacking that and asking, like, what does it actually look like for us to drink this living water and to overflow with that kind of life to the city? So next week, um, we're going to be looking at Jesus as the source of this living water, really asking the question, like, are we actually quenching our thirst with Jesus or are we looking at other places to do that? The week after, we're going to be looking at what it actually means to be filled with God's presence In week four, we're kind of recognizing that we have this treasure, this living water in jars of clay, and we leak. Um, So how do we cultivate that kind of faith that continually looks upwards? 
week five, we're going to look at how we can be people who join in with where God's spirit is at work in the world. Um, And lastly, week six, we're going to be looking at how we can be a church that's bringing life to this city. But just for a short time today, um, just for the short time we've got left, I just really want to hone in on this John 7 passage because there's a question that this passage raises that's absolutely fundamental to the whole of the series. And it's this, are you thirsty? Jesus gives two invitations in John 7. He asks that question, are you thirsty? And then the first invitation is to believe in him. The second invitation is to come and drink. So we're just going to look briefly at those two things. So Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And kind of just being really honest, as I've um, thought about this series, I've really felt the tension that this topic can create because it's so easy to talk about living water, right? Like uncontrollable life, like the rhetoric just kind of slips off the tongue, the buzzwords we'd love to chuck in there. But so often when we start speaking about this, we can kind of sort of glaze over. We can feel ourselves just dialing out. Those words are so familiar to us. And I just kind of wonder why that is. And as I've been thinking about it, I wonder if for some of us, it's because we've been living in that desert place for so long. Like we've grown accustomed to the kind of dry and arid terrain. Like the idea that Jesus comes to bring life feels abstract. And we've kind of given up hope of seeing rivers anymore. Maybe it's to protect ourselves, maybe because of disappointment that we've experienced, or pain, maybe because of a situation or a circumstance. But what's happened is that over time, our belief in who Jesus is and what he came to do has been limited to the circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in. And I think our um, kind of society really is there right now. It's kind of in a desert place of hopelessness. Um, And I've become slightly fascinated uh, around the topic of hope and alternatively what kind of hopelessness does to a society. And we're going to unpack that a bit more in week five. But the headline is that when a culture doesn't place their hope in something external to themselves, so i.e. when a culture doesn't believe in God, what sociologists have noticed is that at the start you see a flurry of activism. And this is kind of people realize that, okay, we can't rely on an external thing. We need to rely on ourselves. But they're optimistic. It's like, right, we can make the world a better place. Let's do this. But when people start to realize that their hard work isn't actually getting them anywhere, um, people are still dying, the world is still painful, things are still going wrong, you enter into the next phrase, which is called um, frenetic hyperactivity. Lovely phrase. And this hyperactivity is all about distracting ourselves from reality. For some, this is all about pleasure, like pure hedonism. It's like, let's just feel good in this moment. For others, though, and probably for more of us, it's about goals and it's about projects that kind of keep our mind off the bigger kind of question of hopelessness. And so we kind of pour ourselves into things that are good, but, um, yeah, are basically distractions. But this is effectively denial. And it doesn't really last that long in a society. And it eventually gives way to a deeper, more lasting societal inertia. Basically, a sense of aimlessness and apathy as people just resign themselves to hopelessness. It's a lovely picture, isn't it, that sociologists are painting for us. But I don't know about you, but I actually recognize some of that in our culture right now. Being in an apathetic place. And I just wonder how much that apathy has actually creeped into the church. 
and into our own faith. You know, rather than hoping in Jesus, believing in him, putting our whole weight upon him, our faith has actually just become a worldview. Like a faith that was once on fire for Jesus becomes just going through the motions. And sure, a worldview can help make sense of the world, but it won't set you free. Like a worldview is fine when everything is working, but it cannot comfort you. A worldview can tell you what's happening in the present, but it will not give you a solid hope for the future when everything else is falling apart. But Jesus can. Like the one who spoke light into darkness, who has conquered death itself. He is not offering you a worldview today. His invitation is to believe, to trust, to place all your hope on him again. You know, I think what God is calling his church to in this moment is fresh hope. It just made me laugh what we were singing today, all about hope. Just as the surrounding culture in Ezekiel's day cried out, our hope is gone, I think God is wanting to lift our eyes to the horizon again. He's raising up men and women of hope. He is inviting his church to rediscover the solid hope that is found when we believe in Jesus, to rediscover that living water that brings life to the desert place. Like the Christian hope, it's, it's confronting to our culture because the substance of our hope is not that we won't have trouble in this life. Like it's not that we're not going to have pain. It's not even that we won't experience physical death. The substance of our hope is Jesus Christ, that our life is eternally safe in him, that one day Jesus will make every single thing new. And in the meantime, he is working together for our good. In the language of the New Testament, hope is the expectation of ultimate future good, like the absolute expectation, not a, ooh, fingers crossed, really hopes this one works out, but an absolute expectation of future good, of heavenly glory based on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Like this is the kind of hope that is on offer to us, that no matter how dark the night gets, morning is coming. It's on offer to us if we believe in him as we drink this living water. So there's an invitation to believe. And lastly, there's an invitation to come and drink. You know, the invitation of Jesus doesn't really stop at believe, although that is a very important first step. But if we stop there, we are stopping short. Like the invitation of John 7 is, if you are thirsty, come and drink. Like, we can kind of get our heads around the believing part, right? We can kind of agree with the theology. But do we actually expect the experience of living water? Do we expect to encounter God's presence? You know, often we can hear about, oh, it's not about experience, it's about belief. And of course, there is some truth in that. Like, do not hear me wrong this morning. I'm not saying we base our belief in Jesus based on how we feel at any given moment. But equally, it's also true that a non-experiential religion is suspect, like the scriptures are full of stories of men and women who didn't have a cold and mechanical faith, but experienced those streams of living water and kept on desiring more of the life of God in their lives and in the world around them. Um, I love reading kind of the autobiographies and the diaries of um, some of the kind of heroes of the faith. It's almost like 18th century reality TV. It's wonderful. But um, what you see is that these people's lives aren't marked out by theories about God, but intimacy with him. Like they're either lamenting over a sense of kind of not having enough of God's presence and eagerly searching for more, or they're kind of, you know, enjoying like the sweetness of his presence, ecstasy of like seeing breakthrough, like they're, they're kind of rejoicing in all of that. 
But what you will not find anywhere is a sense of just being fine with a stale, experienceless faith. We want to echo the Apostle Paul's prayer in Ephesians that we might be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God, that we might continually be filled to overflowing with his spirit. One of the most um, ancient and popular songs that's been sung throughout the centuries is uh, Vinae Creator Spiritus, apparently quite a banger in its day. Um, hasn't quite made it onto the KXC playlist just yet, uh, but it is a hymn from the ninth century, and it's, it's an ancient song that's been repeated for thousands of years. And it's this, come creator spirit, visit the minds of those who are yours, fill with heavenly grace the hearts that you've made. And the song continues to ask for a visitation and extension of the work of the Spirit, like inflaming our devotion, transforming our characters, filling our hearts with love, delivering us from darkness. It's this desire, this thirst to experience more of God's presence. And it's the thirst that's continued down the ages. You know, a more modern song, a classic from the 2000s, Consuming Fire. Um, It puts it a bit more bluntly, but it says it like this, there must be more than this. There must be more than this. Spirit of God, breathe within. Fill us anew, we pray. And I wonder if for this morning, some of us can really resonate with that. There must be more than this. There must be more than this. We've started to resign ourselves to the belief that it's only ever going to be theory without experience. You know, we're going to come on a Sunday, we'll sing the songs that ask for God's spirit to be poured out. We add our amen to those prayers, but we don't really expect it to happen. Maybe we once did, but for a whole host of reasons, we've given up. So instead of coming to drink this living water, we turn the invitation of experience into a theory to consider. A fairy tale that simply distracts from the suffering of this world, rather than opening ourselves up to experiencing him as the one who is at work in the midst of the world with power to redeem it. I um, I took, wow, I sounded emotional then, I'm not... (laughs) Um, I took some time off just before Easter, uh, just for a few days. But whenever anyone hears that you have taken some time off, the immediate follow-up question is asked. It's like, oh, did you go anywhere nice? And at that moment, I die a little bit inside because I know if I answer honestly, then um, any good impression that this person might have of me is going to be irreparably damaged because the honest answer, I'm going to be vulnerable with you here, the honest answer is I hate travel. Now, I know that is not socially acceptable to say, and as a good millennial, I should just have an inbuilt desire to backpack around the world, but I just don't. I'm not a big fan. And when it comes to holidays, when people talk about, oh, relaxing on a beach with their favorite book in hand, you know, somewhere in the sun, I just hear airport security cues and a heck of a lot of sunburn. In my opinion, that's a very expensive way to read the same book I could read in my living room. You know, why would I do this? In terms of experiencing new places, great, Google Street View and Wikipedia, all I need to know right there. Obviously, I'm a really fun person, I promise. Um, But my slight dislike of travel, it came up a few weeks ago. Um, I'm training for ordination. Um, Some of you are like, mental note, don't go to her church. Um, But we had to go on this compulsory retreat. Now, any time that you hear the word compulsory in front of the word retreat, I think you should be deeply, deeply suspicious. Um, But I thought, you know what, I'm going to enter in. I'm going to do it. I'll be open-minded. And we were given 10 options. 
And we were told to prayerfully consider which one you feel the Lord leading you to. So naturally, I looked up the train line plans engineering works and worked out which one is the quickest to get to from my house. And it turns out to be a lovely little retreat house in the rural part of Leicester. But as the kind of weekend neared, I just did not want to go. Like, we can experience God anywhere, right? Like, I'd much rather stay at home, avoid lugging a suitcase around central London, have a nice quiet time in my room. What more could a retreat offer me? And as I was kind of lamenting about this to a friend, um, she just turned to me and she was like, Emma, get over yourself and go. And I was like, yeah, I needed that reminder. So I found myself on a train to rural Leicester, and the retreat was fine. Like, nice house. Food was fine, staff were lovely, but nothing mind-blowing. Nothing that you can't get in Islington. And it was, you know, the Saturday night before we were about to come home. And we'd just finished a late-night session, um, which sounds a lot more wild than it was. It was chapel. Um, <laughs> chapel at 10 p.m. And um, what we had to do, I, had to, I was going to bed. And so I, I opened the, the door that was leading to the courtyard. It was outside. And as I stepped over the threshold... I just did a look up and I did a double take because up in the heavens above were just thousands and thousands of stars. And I'd, I'd never seen anything like it before. It was like rural, rural Leicester. I grew up in Essex and now lived in London. So natural beauty is not something that I've experienced much of. Um, but I literally, I looked up and I just couldn't stop staring. I don't know if you've been like that before. You've seen the stars and you're just lost in the wonder of it all. It was completely silent. No one was around. It was a really cold evening. I could start to see kind of my breath in the air. And I just had that amazing feeling of feeling so, so small. Like the universe, flipping heck, it's massive. It was such a beautiful picture. And I started to feel tears on my cheeks. So I was just being overwhelmed by the reaction to the beauty of that experience. And sure, I could have read up about constellations on the internet. Like I could know everything there is to know about space. But experiencing the beauty of it for yourself is a completely different thing. We don't need new insights into the faith. We do not need more theoretical beliefs about God. We need to experience God's presence. We need to drink this living water for ourselves. You know, this thirst for God isn't more kind of a reflection of 21st century consumerism. We're not desiring more of a commodity. This living water, the spirit is a person. He's part of the Trinity. We're desiring more of God and we're desiring more of God's presence in our world. It is the authentic cry of every believer. It's essential part of our DNA because it mirrors the heart of God because he's longing for more of us. His heart is breaking for the world. You know, just as a father longs to spend time with his kids, so God is longing for us, pursuing us, not content with all that he has of us. And so are you thirsty for more of his presence? And if you are in that place, maybe you're feeling weary, you're feeling dry today, but you know that you need to experience God. I just want to encourage you today, don't let it turn to apathy. Don't become accustomed to the desert. Let it turn into holy discontent push into it stay thirsty come to him express your needs to him continue to open yourself up to him he will meet you in that place he will pour water on dry ground 
You know, sometimes we have an experience of God's spirit that's loud and dramatic, but more often than not, most of the time, it is a gentle, daily infilling of that living water that only comes from Jesus. Simon Ponsby, he puts it like this. He says, the manner in which we experience the spirit's river of fullness flowing is not the main concern. The fact and the fruit of that experience is. The fruit of a life lived in deep intimacy with and powerful ministry for Christ. What we are after is a soaking in the bath, not as many Christians know, merely a hand washing in the basin. Like, are you thirsty? What might happen if over the next six weeks we chose to take that thirst to him? What might our church look like? What might our city look like if we experienced afresh the living water, a greater measure of his presence?